This is the Commercial Property Show, Australia. Show number 11. If you can find something that is only partially built upon and can gain access to the vacant area at the back, that's a terrific way to do it because it's not free land, but it's something that you can add value over and above what the market will give you. Hey, how are you doing? Welcome back to the Commercial Property Show Australia. In today's show, Ellie Gescheit from Navon Solutions explains all about the new low-rise housing diversity code that came into effect in New South Wales on the 1st of July. We discuss the interesting details about the code and the opportunity that it presents for developers and commercial investors. A few episodes ago, we discussed investing in a private syndicate. And in today's show, we dive into setting up your own private syndicate. Chris Lang explains the things you need to know before venturing down this path and the type of property that best suits these group deals. I am also introducing a new segment to the end of the show, which is designed to help you reach your full potential and live life on your terms. So stay tuned all the way to the end for that. Now, a quick message from my company, Develop a Life. At Develop a Life, we want to help you unlock your financial freedom. If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au. Returning to the show to talk all things urban planning is the director of Navon Solutions, Ellie Gescheit. Welcome back, mate. How are you? Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, really good, mate. How are you? I'm fantastic, buddy. So how's business been uh, for you during the COVID period? Yeah, listen, uh, it's pretty much smooth sailing on my end. I mean, I've heard some horror stories from other consultants I work with, but thankfully, yeah, business is running smoothly. You know, I, you know what I tell people, Andrew, is, is really as long as councils are still open, so will we. Fantastic. Have you seen a increase of the amount of development applications since we got back into kind of normality? I haven't seen it uh, dramatically increase or reduce, but I have had a lot of, lot of inquiries on new people buying sites and wanting to understand what they want to do with it. Um, See, so yeah, it's definitely been an interesting time. Yeah, definitely. No doubt it will go down in history as one of the strangest times ever. <laughs> sure. All right. So as you know, on the 1st of July, a new development code came into effect in New South Wales called the Low-Rise Housing Diversity Code. 
And this actually presents an interesting opportunity for residential developers and could have a flow-on effect for commercial investors as well. So, Ellie, I was just wondering if you could explain what the code is about and a little bit about the background of how long this has been in the pipeline. Okay, sure. Yes, it has been in the pipeline for a good few years. In fact, it was actually deferred twice. So this is the third time around that it now applies to all councils. And I think it's probably been at least a five-year process. So now since the 1st of July, it's been rolled out to all councils across the state. And the code effectively is it allows mums and dads and small-time developers to build either, let's say, a dual occupancy or a manor house, which I'll get into later, as well as terraces, all through a certifier as a compliant development. So as long as it ticks the box and meets all the requirements, you can basically have an approval much quicker than you could uh, through a DA. Okay, can you just explain what a, a manor-type house is for the people that don't know? Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, it's actually not a new concept. Think of it kind of as like a, a duplex where you have a two-storey building with, you know, in the good old days you had one dwelling below and one dwelling above. But now a manor house, you can actually have four units within the building and it's actually quite a compact building with, let's say, maybe two or three bedroom units in each of them. So it's a new model that's been rolled out through New South Wales. And until now, councils haven't really, I guess, catered for it in their planning controls. So it's a new model, a new type of development that is going to be interesting to see. Okay, so I guess it's kind of like a fourplex, isn't it? Yeah, fourplex, duplex, exactly. Yep. And with this type of development, what are the requirements for like the the frontage and the the depth of the site they're quite different aren't they yeah they are so as i said before this code is not just for one type of building it's for manor houses dual occupancies and terraces and each of them have their intricate uh, planning controls and guidelines so yes so you'd have a different set of controls for a dual occupancy it needs to be certain width certain size minimum size and it varies across the different developments. So, but the manor type house, that's the one with the highest density though, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, great. So, does this mean it can be actually strata titled, as in the manor house, it can be strata titled into four separate sellable areas? Listen, that's my understanding. Yes, it could be strata subdivided. It's not like a boarding home, boarding house, where there's one owner of the property and they're individually lettered out. So, yeah, it's a lot more flexible than that. Yeah, it's great. So that it'll obviously propose a bit of uh, incentive for developers to get higher density to make more money. So where are these That's type right. of developments allowed? That's the million-dollar question, Andrew. Like, for example, manor houses, if you read the controls or the guidelines, that you can get a sense that the government is really encouraging developers to buy corner sites for manor houses. And as well as, let's say, a dual occupancy too, the controls are cleverly written in that you have two scenarios for a dual occupancy. Either it can be on a corner or it can have, let's say, a rear lane access or it can be a typical block with access you know, for one street at the front. So say you had a, a larger than normal block. So let's say you've got a 40 metre frontage. 
Could you potentially split that into multiple manor style houses? Because I, I mean, I've seen the picture of the manor type house, and it looks like it's a long, long, thinner kind of building. Mm. Is that something where you could subdivide it into, say, like three or four separate manor style developments? Listen, I, I don't know if the intention behind the code was to do something like that, but I guess if you do have a large enough block, there might be opportunity so to subdivide it and let's say put two manor houses on there. But I guess you'd have to read through, you know, all the council and the state legislation to make sure that if you do split up a site into two, that each lot meets the minimum, you know, width requirements and also the site area requirements. Yeah, and these type of developments, they already have plans and stuff for them, don't they, that you can abide by so you can get it through the council the council approval faster. Is that correct? Well, yeah, or what it is, so through this code, it's it's similar to where you, you have the affordable housing policy where you could build a granny flat outside you know, in your garden all through a certifier. So it follows the same uh, system, let's say, where councils are not involved at all in the decision-making process. You you basically go to your architect or your building designer and get something drawn up that meets the, the code. So it's called the Low-Rise Housing Diversity Code, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, you get them to design it that way. You take it to your certifier who will who will do a review of the, the design. And sometimes uh, what I'm finding more is Certifiers are asking us as town planners to also review the plans to make sure it complies. And then if it all if it ticks all the boxes and you can get your approval. And how long do you think do you estimate that could take? Because it's supposed to be fast track, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Well, it has been adopted on the 1st of July. It has been in place uh, through a number of councils already for at least the last 12 months. For example, I know of a case in Waverley Council last year where an architect that I work with, he got an approval for a dual occupancy through a certifier and they had to get lawyers involved because there could have been view impacts. So it was a very tedious process. But I guess when you're the first, when you're doing this for the first time as a certifier or a developer, it's for sure going to take a lot longer than than usual. Like I remember, I would say about 15 years ago when the New South Wales Housing Code first came out and I was at, at the front counter in Waverley Council and we received over the counter the first new house that was approved under a CDC through a certifier. And all the neighbours were, you know, jumping up in arms. They're like, what can we do? You know, we want to object. And we, like, kindly told them, well, you can't object because... You know, it's beyond council. So this is the same system, really. And I would say there's definitely going to be teething issues as it progresses. But I would say in the long term, it'll definitely be a superior system than lodging a DA with council. Can you give me an estimate of time you think, like weeks, that this could potentially take? Listen, I would say once you have the plans and everything with the certifier, I would imagine it'll take a few weeks for the certifier to, to review it. Yeah, great. Excellent. What council areas do you think will be most affected by the new code? Yeah, good question. I think areas where you've got already controls which allow these types of developments, particularly dual occupancies and terraces and townhouses. And I should tell you that there have been some councils in the background trying to update their controls, their LEPs, to make sure, for example, a manor house, let's say, is is prohibited in an R2 zone. 
So th there are councils that are being a bit sneaky with that so that now that this has been adopted, so, okay, uh, I want to do a manor house here, let's say, but then in the meantime, the council has actually, let's say, prohibited a manor house in that zone, or they might have made it very restrictive, like, I don't know, a thousand square metre site uh, requirement. So it's it'll be interesting to see how it picks up and which councils, I guess, are going to be supportive of these new developments. Yes, it's only a few zones they're allowed in, isn't it? And I'm just trying to understand this. It's only, say, in R2 zone, if you look on the planning portal, New South Wales planning portal, and you look in what's allowed there, it has to say multi-dwelling housing, and it yes. already be there for you to be able to develop this property. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it should be there. Yeah, except I should point out, you might not be able to build something under this system as what you'd be able to achieve with a DA. For example, you'll have a, a maximum FSR on the development, right? But we're, under this system, it has to fully comply. It can't be one square metre over the maximum floor area that's allowed. But if you lodge a DA, you might be able to get maybe 50 square metres or an extra bedroom on that property. Again, the, the council DA system is designed to allow that flexibility within reason. So, as I said, it's a very attractive policy for mums and dads and small-time developers, except you have to find, number one, the right location, and really you have to do your due diligence properly. All right, so are there any suburbs that you can name that you know that allow multi-dwelling houses in R2 zones or zones that are allowed to have this type of development? Most councils have an R2 zone, let's say, and that allows everything. But as I said, you have to uh, I don't know it offhand, Andrew. I don't know oh, all okay. the count. I don't know all the councils' uh, LEPs off by heart. But you would have to look by case by case scenario to say, okay, let's look at Ride Council. Let's look at North Sydney. Let's look at Parramatta Council. All of them vary. Uh, I would imagine dual occupancies will be will be easier to get approved than that same manor house or townhouses, because it's something that councils are pretty much used to working with. But when where you have manor houses or townhouses as a as potentially a CDC, I would imagine different councils will will view it differently. Some might support it. Some might say, well, actually, we're we're going to make it impossible for for someone to lodge a, a CDC uh, for a manor house in this council. If you know what I mean. For the listeners, can you just explain what CDC stands for? CDC is a Complying Development Certificate. Beautiful. What are some important things to know for developers when they're using this code that we haven't already mentioned? Listen, they're the devils in the detail, and you have to have a good team behind you. You have to consult a designer, an architect, and potentially town planner also, as well as definitely a certifier. You have to have a really good team that understand these controls, because as I said, there's no grey area with with this system in other words if you design something that's one centimeter above the maximum then you can't do it it has to be a da as i said earlier on andrew you have to really do your due diligence properly so that you don't fall into mistakes yeah i guess that could be a good thing and a bad thing too because if you do follow everything and you're doing all the right things then you get your approval through quicker isn't it exactly and i would encourage people if they can, to try get an approval through this system. But as I said, you have to do your due diligence. It, it just reminded me, I had a client 
end of 2018 come to me to say, listen, I bought this property, it was in Waverley Council, I want to do a dual occupancy under this system, which at that time it did apply. And I said, that's great. I went through the code and I looked at the site and I said, well, actually, your site's too narrow. His site was 12 metres, but he needed 15 metres. So we had to go through the DA process, which was very lengthy and arduous. So yeah, you have to do your due diligence and understand, you know, whether number one, it's possible, whether the zoning permits it. And number two, if you design something on that property, is it going to be able to comply? And Andrew, it's something also we haven't discussed too. If I was to go tomorrow to a council to lodge a DA for a manor house, the council has to accept it and assess it. So what this policy has introduced is this new development called a manor house, uh, but council's controls haven't, you know, don't really allow or accommodate a manor house. So the code actually has a whole nother suite of controls where if you're lodging a DA and the council doesn't have it at the moment, a DCP for a manor house, then the code actually prevails. So you'd use oh. that for your DA. So it, it has made things a little bit flexible in that end. Okay. So did you end up getting that DA across the line for that skinnier block? Yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So moving on to the commercial investor aspect of this, do you think there might be a need for more childcare per suburb now that there is a possibility that density could be a bit higher? Yeah, it's it's a good question. The thing is, like, even though this is encouraging density, like the maximum you could get on a site under this system, let's say is four in a manor house, or if it's a townhouse development, you might, I don't know, depending on the size of the site, maybe six or even 10 houses on one site, possibly. So the, I don't think the density is going to be increased that dramatically compared to, let's say, like a block of apartments, you know, that you just plonk in the middle of a neighbourhood. But it, yeah, I think it would definitely trigger a need for other services, possibly childcare centres. But I don't, especially in existing urban areas within Sydney, I don't, I don't see it um, being a, a drain on existing childcare centres. I think it would just trigger possibly new opportunities for other developments. Okay. So my next question was around neighbourhood shops. If there is a higher density, maybe in more rural areas that are in R1 zones, there might be a, a need for more neighbourhood shops, which presents an opportunity for commercial investors. Do you see that possibly as being the case? Yeah, definitely. For sure. Like in outer areas of Sydney, possibly there might be areas where you know, you could do a whole suburb, let's say, under this system, a whole area, a few streets worth of houses or manor houses or terraces, whatever it is, as a CDC. So, yeah, there might be an opportunity for new businesses, shops, for sure, neighbourhood shops and, and possibly even offices. So, it, it very, yeah, it, it could trigger new opportunities, definitely. Just comparing the two. So, say we're going to do a, a townhouse development in a rural area. And we're going to go through a normal DA process. And then we're going to do exactly the same area. And we're going to do a manor house style CDC development. What would be the difference in time frame to actually getting that approved? I would say, yeah, as I said, probably a few weeks. Like once you've got the, the templates right, you're dealing with a team of consultants that have worked on these projects before. I would say give it a matter of weeks once the design has been finalized. And then I would, you know, flipping on the other side to the DA context, you know, DAs can take three months, six months. It really, really depends on a, a range of things. So it could basically be the matter of, 
you know, six months difference. It could be, yeah. Sorry, Andrew, you were saying rural zones. I'm just looking at, I'm just reading it now. It does say you can put it in a, in an R, it's called an RU5 zone. Yeah. Which is quite unusual. If you look at around in the out, outer suburbs of Sydney, you might see an RU5 zone. So, yeah, it's, it, again, it has to be permissible in the zone for you to even contemplate going through this uh, new code. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was just trying to get a comparison. Basically, if everything was the same and you're allowed to do both, how much faster is the the new code compared to just getting a DA? That's kind of where I was just kind of getting a just comparison. Yeah, I would say it's much faster, much faster. I would say yeah. within a few weeks, if you've got you know the right team, the design is fit. Because I I have heard horror stories where people have tried to apply for a complying development, right? But it take you're going back and forward, getting the design changes, you know, new consultants, engineering diagrams, whatever it is, goes back and forward because it has to be 100% right. Whereas with a DA, you can submit your plans. It can be 99% there, right? But then the beauty of a DA, let's say, is you can get an approval subject to conditions and those conditions might say you need a, a stormwater plan or, or a detailed stormwater plan so that there's aspects in it. there's certainly benefits obviously in this cdc system but it all has to be done in the one package whereas with a da you have two stages you have the development application the da and then you have the cc the construction certificate so this this um, complying development certificate is both yeah. both stages basically instead Okay, yeah. So I guess the opportunity really is for developers. Once you've done one of these and you've got all your ducks in a row and you know how to do it, you could start churning these out because you've done it before. And if you have a a really good team behind you, you could potentially churn out quite a few of these and then pass them on. And I guess time is money, they usually say. So that's the Mm. opportunity I see in it. Is that where you'd agree? Yeah, definitely. If it's like your mum and dad trying to like bypass council, they just want a quick approval, it might not be really for them um, because they might not understand, I guess, the pros and cons going with a DA, where, as I said earlier on, you might be able to get a bit more floor space compared to under this system, which is which is not as rigid as a DA. So, yeah, but whereas, as you alluded to before, there could be opportunities for small-time developers to do, you know, manor houses here, dual occupancy there. Uh, all under this system and yeah doing it for the first time won't be easy but once you go from the second one to the 10th one to the 20th then it'll be much easier you know i guess it'll be kind of like a bit of a cookie cutter kind of approach where every single building will be the same are there any kind of differences in design to make it a little bit more aesthetically pleasing Ah, uh, yeah, definitely yeah, they're not going to all look the same I must add to one of the extra things that this code has introduced is something called a design verification statement. So in a normal context of a DA, um, you need one of these uh, when you're designing an apartment building, right? So now the government's introduced this design verification statement. It has to be done by a registered architect or a building designer. So that gives the not just the council, but the certifiers and the government that extra um, assurance that the design has been done by a professional, number one. And number two, it's going to create some diversity. While under this system, it has to technically comply with the, the height and the FSR and setbacks and all of that, 
I would imagine there'd still be, it, it would allow some flexibility with the design. You wouldn't want to have like a cookie cutter approach. Like, you know, you look around town, you look at Meriton and all these big developers that, you know, using the same designs, you know, doesn't always look attractive. But I think this system opens up the ability for building designers. So uh, as well as architects to design something that, that, that fits in and, and is livable too. Is there anything in the code about the colour schemes that are available for it? Because I know the cookie cutter approach now is just that kind of grey colour. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I'd have to check that for you. But yeah, you wouldn't want to see all these grey manor houses around Sydney. Yeah, that's right. Where can the listeners go to find out more about your company and your services? Listen, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, as you know. So if you just look me up, Ellie Gescheit on LinkedIn, or uh, you can head to my website, which is at www.navonsolutions.com.au. Excellent, mate. Today's guest has been Ellie Gescheit from Navon Solution. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cash flow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. It's not unusual to receive 50 to 100 to even $200,000 of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's Commercial Property Cashflow Blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. Our next guest is the seven-time best-selling author and mentor, Chris Lang. How are you, Chris? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm great, buddy. So last episode, we discussed investing in a private syndicate, and today we're going to jump into how to set up a private syndicate. So where do you actually start, Chris? Do you find the property first or the investors? Well, most syndicates, either private or public, find the property first. And as I mentioned last time, that presents a problem that's hard to negotiate. The best deal you can and then have the vendor wait around while you have a three or four month option during the time needed to find the investors. So the way I found worked best was if you could get the investors lined up beforehand because then you knew exactly how much equity you had to work with but probably more importantly the investors then got to choose the property see with most syndicates the property's there whether you like it or not you're stuck with it you just have to decide am i going to contribute or not so the process is with my clients is that they indicate the level of equity that they have in mind so we total that up and let's say we've got two million dollars worth of equity that means with 
non-recourse finance, you can buy a property for $5.2 million. So in most cases, there's a bit more equity, but that's sort of the minimum that we'd look for. Now, the arrangement we have and the basis they go into it is that they contribute up front 30% of the intended equity that they want to put into the into the deal. Now, that is placed in an interest-bearing trust account with a firm of lawyers so that the, the funds are isolated and earning income. And then the trust deed is put together. Now, it's not a normal trust deed. Most trustees are what are referred to as vanilla documents. In other words, they comply with the requirements of ASIC. Now, yes, they have to do that. But the syndicate document that I've worked with the solicitor and refined over 18-year period includes all the things that the reasons that people got involved or want to get involved with these syndicates. And as I might have mentioned last time, there's a four-year mandatory review. Now, that's all written into the trustee so that there has to be a a meeting, there has to be a 75% majority to continue to own the property at the end of four years. And if that decision is made, If you're part of the 25% that didn't want to go ahead, well, then the trustee is under the trustee required to buy out your equity, redeem your units. So that mechanism, as I explained last time, has worked very well and it's never happened in all the 20 years that I've been doing it because it unexpectedly created this competition and the more involved investors decided that they wanted to individually buy out those units if someone wanted to leave. So we structure the trust deed, it's executed by everybody and then we find or go out and look for the property and the there's a unit trust and a corporate trustee is the entity that's going to purchase it. And the corporate trustee is made up of all the unit holders and the same shareholder relativity proportionately to the unit trust. And that company elects three members. And those three members are the ones that deal with me on a day-to-day basis to identify the property decide whether it's a suitable property and they refer back to the other syndicate members and then we negotiate the deal. And because they've got 30% of the intended equity in the solicitor's trust account, the moment we conclude the deal, we're in a position to sign a contract, or the syndicate is, and to pay a 10% deposit. So that means we can close a good deal. There may be a due diligence period involved, but as soon as it goes unconditional, then the solicitors write to all the individual members and say the balance of your equity is now due and they've got 30 days to get that into the solicitor's trust account so that that's ready and available when settlement comes 60 or 90 days later. Okay, so what actually constitutes a syndicate? And then just on what you just said, when you are purchasing the property and you find a property, do you contact each investor and they have to give the yes or no, I want to proceed with this property, I like it, or how does it work? No, well, that's what I said. It's a board of three. There might be six or seven members in the syndicate and they're all shareholders and unit holders in the vehicle, but they elect three to deal with me. And the logic of that is that they're all, most of my clients are in different states, but when we find a property and it's referred back to the other syndicate members by the the three, then the decision is made to proceed. So if we we negotiate the deal, and what I generally do is there's enough material, visual and factual for them to make a decision without actually inspecting the property. So what I tend to do, rather than 
particularly because they're coming from all different parts of Australia, is we negotiate and finalise the commercial terms of the deal, but until a contract's signed, they're not bound. So that way, we effectively put our foot on the property while the various three board members fly into Melbourne, which is where the property is most likely bought, and can inspect the property. Now, if they're not happy with it, they don't proceed. You've got to say in the 20 years I've been doing it, there's never been one they haven't been happy with. But until they sign the contract, they're not bound. So at that point, having inspected the property and decided it is what they thought they were buying, we then go into the solicitor's office. The contract is executed by the, the board members, or two of them. It doesn't have to be all three, but three is a good number because that means if there's a vote required, at least you're likely to get a decision. So the contract's then executed. There may, as I said, be a due diligence period, both for the physical, the legal, and anything else that has to be verified, and that could be anywhere from a week to three weeks. And until that's satisfied, that the due diligence study, until that everyone's happy with it, the contract remains conditional and only goes unconditional once everyone is satisfied. Okay. So what actually constitutes a syndicate? Well, the syndicates that I do with, it's a handful of people, when I say handful, five, six, seven maybe, of serious investors, and they form together in this legal entity, which is a unit trust with a corporate trustee of which they have an equal shareholding in. And then how many people can be involved before you have to report to ASIC? ASIC say that for a private syndicate to remain a private syndicate, it's no more than 20 people and raising no more than $2 million in equity. However, if they are deemed to be what's called sophisticated investors, then they do not count in that number of investors or the equity involved. Can you just explain what a sophisticated and an accredited investor is? Well, look, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that if you're investing, I think it's $250,000 or more, or you have personal net assets of over a million dollars. Now, I might stand corrected. There might have been a variation of that. It's never been an issue because most of my clients come to me as sophisticated investors. That's by their own declaration. So, but as I said, my working knowledge of the law is that 250000 as an individual investment into the syndicate or having personal assets of a million, net million dollars. And that's for sophisticated. And then what's the definition of an accredited investor? Oh, I think it's just a different name for the same thing. I might be wrong. Oh, is it? Okay, fair enough. So with the property, what type of property should you target and what type of tenant would you want for a private syndicate? The fact that it's a syndicate doesn't alter what I would target. I guess my first preference would be for offices and then maybe industrial and retail would be a very distant third. One recently we bought which was an office, it was actually a strata floor, but it had 11 titles, one tenant, but 11 titles. And part of the deal was that we wanted, because it was effectively a sale and lease back, different entities, but it was a part of the company owned the property and the other part the business. So we had them sign 11 separate leases. So it provides a lot of flexibility down the track. There was another property 
uh, and that one was, I think, 5.7 million. There was another property recently at around 7 million, which was two floors leased to an advertising agency. Again, there were separate leases for each floor. So, you know, down the track, you know, the, the syndicate decides, look, we want to sell off one, two, three different components you can. You don't have to sell the whole property. Okay. Would you be looking at property that has upside potential as well? I guess most of the clients are passive investors who are looking for predictable income. And, you know, as I said, it's funny that 80% of my clients are from interstate. And as I jokingly say, I don't know whether we're Victorian in name and Victorian in nature, but Melbourne doesn't seem to sort of reach the heady heights of Brisbane and Perth, but nor does it plumb the depths. And most of my clients, even though they might be located in those other states, they see the volatility. And Melbourne seems to be much more predictable. The global financial crisis didn't see it come off nearly as much as the other capital cities. And I suspect the same will be with with what we're going through now with the coronavirus. You know, it'll flatline for a while. But as I say to clients, the demand here in Melbourne doesn't disappear it just gets deferred. Okay, so I'm putting together an investor group myself. And the thing that I kind of like about or I like to look for in the properties that I'm targeting are upsides where I can eventually refinance the property and get the investors money out and back to them. So everyone's in that deal without any money in it. That's probably more of like an actual syndicator, isn't it, Chris? Well, yes, it is. The way I like to add value is to effectively buy the property wholesale and then because of its size, be able to subdivide it down into smaller titles. Now, the advantage with that is that even though you might ultimately choose to sell it in one line, the next purchaser has the comfort of knowing that if they got caught short, they could sell off all or part of the the separate titles. Now, when we negotiated that property with 11 titles, the reality was if we wanted to sell them off separately within six months, let's say, of buying it, we probably could have made for the syndicate maybe a million dollars worth of profit because we'd locked that in by the way we structured the deal at the beginning. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yep. Right, so there's different ways to add value. I mean, sometimes it's speculative in the market because of where it is or what it is, but that's something over which you have little or no control. If there is, you can get a property that maybe the leases might have five years to run. The property is such that it's returning a good income, but at the end of five years, if you were to refurbish it, you could increase the income by 25%, but not have to outlay a lot of money to do it. That's another way of having upside to the property. But it also means that as investors, you've got to put in a little bit more money in five years' time to have that happen, or it's unlikely that you'll be able to borrow at that point until you've done the work because technically you don't have a tenant while you're doing the work. So, you know, there's different ways and means of doing it. Most of my investors are passive. Yes, they they want to see growth, but the way they'll add value is, is by probably subdividing the property, getting separate titles for different floors or parts of floors and what have you, so that when the time comes to sell, the next person will pay you for the comfort of knowing that they have flexibility. Okay, I mean, because the type of properties that I'm looking at, Chris, I'm looking at industrial property that has a low building envelope, so there's room to build. 
And then what I, I look for is obviously multi-tenanted, below market rent. And then what I would do is I would subdivide the property. And then after the subdivision is complete, then we'd refinance that property and use that money to actually develop the area that isn't developed. And then you can increase the NLA, the net letable area, and then that would in turn increase the value. And then you would drag out the money and pay the investors back. So it's kind of a few steps and it's a lot more involved. You don't think that could work? Yeah, no, there's no reason why it couldn't work. I'm just saying that most of my clients don't want to go down that path. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with what you want to do. Industrial property is harder to work with in that generally it's the way industrial property is developed. It's, it's a one building, one tenant operation. If you can find something that is only partially built upon, and can gain access to the vacant area at the back, that's a terrific way to do it because it's not free land, but it's something that you can add value over and above what the market will give you. Yeah, that's right. I've got a property that I'm negotiating with the owner at the moment in Newcastle, so we'll see what happens with that. So, Chris, with the LVR with these properties, you want what's called non-recourse finance. What what does that mean? Well, you've got to understand with a when people go into a syndicate together, If you're required to provide a guarantee to the loan, and it's everyone that'll have to provide it, the problem is they're they're what are called joint and several guarantees. So if one of the parties can't meet their obligation, the other parties have to pick that up, which is the last thing you want if you're a, a member of a syndicate. And so the way we like to structure it is it's non recourse. In other words, the property is the sole security for the deal. So if anything untoward happens, no one else has to dip into their pocket to meet the commitment of the loan. You just hand the property back to the lender and that's it. I mean, we don't go into a deal for that outcome in mind, but I'm just saying that's part of the way the trustee is structured so that every investor knows that they will not have to carry any responsibility for a default on the loan. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Mm. So, Chris, with these private syndicates, do you actually put your own money in or do you receive shares in the unit trust for setting them up? Actually, neither. The reason of that is that back in the late 80s, I had a few clients that wanted me to get involved with them to, to purchase property, which I did. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Now, I had a personal reason a few years after that, as I said, you know, circumstances change, you know, every about every three, four years. I had a need to get money out personally. That's as the investor. But wearing my hat, and therefore I wanted them to sell the property, but wearing my hat as an agent, an advisor, my advice to them was don't sell the property. Right? Mm-hmm. So I ended up with a conflict, and I, I swore and declared after that that I would never do that. I don't want to ever put myself in a position where I've got a, a conflict that the advice that, that I should give is not what I want to give. So uh, in that way, all my clients now know that any advice, they mightn't like the advice that I give them, but they know exactly where it's coming from. It's not tainted uh, and not coloured by anything personal with me. Okay, that's, that's very good. I, I actually assumed that the ones that you were setting up, you were setting up and you had shares in, but now I realize that you're you're really just the advisor of it. Correct. You're just doing, you're just doing your normal buyer's agent mentor job 
but you're not actually collecting any dividend from the actual syndicate? No, no. That's interesting. So, Chris, is there a rule of thumb to keeping a certain amount of money in the trust for operating costs and mortgage costs? Yeah, we generally, even though we could buy a property, say, for $5.2 million, we might end up buying it for for five, let's say. So there will probably be about eighty dollars or $90,000 of cash left available at the end of the settlement and so forth. Now, what I generally say to clients is that I like to keep about three months' worth of interest in the kitty. It sits in an interest-bearing account, but I like to do that so that for whatever reason, and I mean, it might be that take this coronavirus, you know, the tenants have said that, and the government mandated that they've got to be given some sort of consideration. Well, that was unexpected, but you don't want to have to suddenly find that you've got to chip in more money. So you might have to use part of that to top up your interest payments for the next quarter because you've had to give a a 20% rent reduction to the tenants. Right. So, as I said, three months interest coverage is, is about what I think is the appropriate figure. And what about for outgoings and maintenance? Well, they're paid for by the tenant. I mean, in commercial property, unless it's a retail tenant, they pay all outgoings and that should have it covered. But again, sometimes you get land tax comes in and, and that's depending on the property. It could be a, a large amount. Now, the tenant might pay it, but you as the owner are responsible. So it may be that that has to be paid first and then recouped from the tenant. So you may need, from a cash flow point of view, to cover the, the land tax when it comes in and I think it's late January, early February, before it's recouped in February, March from the tenant. But as I said, most commercial leases are structured that all maintenance, outgoings, insurance, etc. Sometimes even the management fee for collecting the rent is also met by the tenant. If you do want to set up a private syndicate, can you advertise this? What are the rules around that? Probably not, because that's really when, if you're advertising it, that's when you really do need a disclosure statement or product disclosure statement. I would say that, no, you wouldn't do that. You know, if an accountant or solicitor were to send a circular around to their clients, that would be probably the, the most overt way you could do it. But even that, you wouldn't find a lot of accountants and solicitors doing that. They're sort of scared witless with what ASIC might do. So it's more word of mouth. People understand and know that you have helped other clients do it. Someone might come to you and say, I've got a couple of friends that are interested. And I say, well, actually, there's two of my clients that would like to do it. And maybe we put them together in, in a syndicate. So no, it's not something you would advertise. Okay. So are there any other rules that you would need to be aware of? No, I think that really no advertising. If they're strictly amateur investors, maximum of 20 and a maximum of 2 million raised in equity. I think they're the basic ones. I mean, there might be some other minor ones, but you need to talk to your solicitor or accountant about that before going getting involved. Okay, fantastic. We'll wrap it up there, Chris. My guest today has been Chris Lang. Thanks, Chris. A pleasure. All the best. Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called... 
Ripper, Ripper Resource. I am super stoked that I was able to work in some jazz flute into this new segment called Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. All right, here we go. So these resources, they don't have to be specifically for commercial property investing. They could be self-help. They could be property development. They could be uh, anything and everything. So with the very first Ripper resource, I have to pay homage to Rich Dad, Poor Dad. If you haven't read or listened to this book, what are you doing? You need to go and get it. It is an amazing read. It could literally change the way you think about money, definitely change the way you think about cash flow and what's possible. It was the number one book in finance. It's literally probably the greatest investing book or business investing book going around. And it's just a really, really great read. And I don't actually read books. I listen to them. And I've probably listened to that book at least five times. It's just a really, really good book. I keep on going back to, I keep on getting more out of it each time I listen to it. And that is the very first Ripper resource, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert T. Kiyosaki. That brings us to the end of the show. I'd like to thank the guests and Kevin McLeod for the music. I hope you enjoyed the new segment, Ripper Resource. I'm trying to add value wherever I can. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, pay the price today so you can pay any price tomorrow. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.